Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Monday Coding and Compliance Roundtable on Tuesday. It is August 15th, 2023, and it is a day fraught with all kinds of interesting things going on in our world. Uh, nothing like dealing with nonsense, but that's nobody else's problem except mine and Paul Spencer's for right now, and we'll figure it out. So with that said, I want to welcome each and every single one of you to today's podcast. We are live streaming on multiple channels. And as such, I want to say thank you to each and every single one of you for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us for a little while. Today, I've got Terry Fletcher, Christine Hall, Paul Spencer, and Scott Kraft. So we're going to spend this time talking about five and who knows, maybe Terry and Christine and Scott and Paul have some more that they want to talk about. But we're going to talk about the 2024 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule proposed rule uh, that was released uh, just last week. And it has some very interesting things in it. I know amongst those are some of Terry's favorite topics, including telehealth. But welcome to each and every single one of you guys. How are you? We're good. Good. Good, good. And Paul, I just get a Mensa Mensa with a, eh, you know. All right. So uh, good. Everybody's doing good. We have a lot to talk about. So unfortunately today we can't break chops. So let's jump right into this and let's start with the very first one. We're going to start with split shared services. And I think when we talk about split shared services, and I'll just kind of kick this one off. Um when we talk about split shared services, we have to understand that there were several proposals that have come down the pike as of recently um, with respect to the definition of substantive portion. And at one point in 2022, the rule said that they were going to transition us to time being the substantive portion. And then Somewhere along the way, they said, yeah, we're not going to kind of follow through with that. We're just going to leave it as is, and we're going to let you guys use either the key components of the history, the exam, and medical decision-making, or time. Well, the interesting thing is, why would we rely on history exam when they were no longer required components based on the elements you know, of the CPT codes for E&M services? To the extent that a provider only had to document what they considered to be a medically appropriate history and exam. So there was no definitive there. And I mean, you know, I could just see the auditors from these contractors to Medicare coming out and saying, well, you don't have enough history. Well, how much is enough? You don't have enough examination. Well, how much is enough? The guidelines, which are ill-defined, 
basically say at the discretion of the provider, it is a medically appropriate history, which is based on the patient's presenting problems and what the provider determines to be an appropriate course for review. Now, medical decision-making is an easy one, right? Because we have charts that we could follow. And, you know, even though there's some subjectivity, but they backed off and they said, hey, listen, we're not going to force you guys at this point in 2023. We're going to leave it in place until calendar year 2024. And we're going to let you make the decision on history, exam, medical decision-making, one of those components or time. And then January 1st of 2024, we were supposed to transition completely away from the substantive portion definition of 2022-2023 to now time dominates. So whoever has the majority of time engaged in the encounter with the patient gets the bill for it. Well, not so fast. The proposed rule says, yeah, we think we're going to leave it in place for another year. All right. I'll pause. Let me kick it out to Christine first. Let's see what you got to say about this. I say this is a giant mess. Um, I, I think I see the same thing when we're talking about history. The In the hospital setting, that's where split and shared happens. Or in a facility setting, that's where split and shared happens. So a substantive portion of history. Well, they removed the interval of history definition from selecting a level of service. So are we using 95, 97? Are we using 2023 guidelines for it? I think it's created more confusion than anything else. Um, and, and what I've seen is providers just manipulating this so that everything is submitted under the physician when we have those split and shared visits. So we have these high level visits, which is a, a compilation of the two visits and everything is reported under the physician because, again, it's ill-defined based on the new guidelines. And that's what I'm seeing right now. Terry? I'm seeing the same thing. I'm also seeing a lack of the FS modifier being submitted. And a lot of the payers that are the, the MAC payers are starting to question that. They're saying, based on the volume, there's no way you could have seen this many patients in the office and on the same day in the hospital based on yourself. And so then they go to question it, find out they first start at the hospital level. Was this a split visit? It's clearly it was because there was both entries in the record by both providers. And they're like, why didn't you use the FS? Oh, we forgot. Or we did. We only thought it was for mid-levels. We didn't think the doctor had to put it on too. It's for anybody if it's a split visit. And they, you, people have to remember, this is for data mining. They're trying to make a point. The whole reason the split and share visits move to hospital only or facility only, and the reason there's so many stringent rules around it is because prior to 2021, it was the fact that the doctor just had to go over, say, I agree, I agree, and sign off on the note, and they could bill it under them their, themselves. Well, that's not the case anymore. Now, they're because they realize, they meaning Medicare, realized that they were paying 100% of allowable for something that truly was really being done by the mid-level providers. And I know that's an old school way to say it, the extenders. And so um, I think they were hoping to save a lot of money and just the opposites happened, especially because time also now says non-face-to-face. Now, CPT says no, that which is weird because you're they're usually the one that says do whatever you want. But 
um, CMS is the one that says can include non-face-to-face. -face. So I have one doctor who says, oh, I did everything. I didn't even see the patient and I had more time. And I'm just like, what did you do? Because I reviewed the history and um, that's all I needed to do because I completed the history review in its entirety non-face-to-face. -face. And I'm just like, oh, kill me now. So Scott, did you kill me you? Yeah, I think when this originally came out, uh, that was my biggest fear with time is that we were going to have these physicians sort of sitting in an office somewhere doing en masse documentation review and saying, well, I spent, you know, 20 minutes and this other person spent 19 with the patient and therefore I should build a service. I think what they're doing now is possibly worse. Um, and just to go through some of the history on this, uh, no pun intended, you know, this this temporary, temporary um idea that the physician could, quote, document the history exam or medical decision making in its entirety predates the documentation guidelines switch that occurred in the inpatient setting. And there was a little piece of clarification, I forget which fee schedule, it might have been 2022, that basically said, well, you can take whatever the provider documents, the physician, and use that, quote, as the complete history if you're using history, because at one point, the notion of complete had to do with, well, if a nurse practitioner documents or a PA documents a 10 system exam and the physician documents eight, 10 seems more complete than eight, even as both are comprehensive. Now we're in literally the worst situation when it comes to decision-making because now the history and exam are totally discretionary. And so if a cardiologist comes in and the PA sees the patient and then the MD sees the patient, and the MD documents nothing more than a cardiac exam, and that's the only thing. Is that history? Is that exam in its entirety? I mean, we I don't have a great basis point to say it's not, given the the confluence of changing rules here. And so, uh, you know, I can't think of any any appropriate colloquialisms to describe when. Uh, there's extensive delay and dithering absent making a final decision. I can think about 10 inappropriate ones that I won't say, but um, I think it's just time to make a decision here and stop sort of stringing this along for a year because this is going to end up being more of a problem than it's worth when we start to see, you know, audit activity around this and we're trying to parse under discretionary guidelines what is, quote, a medically appropriate history that a physician may document to take credit for the entire service. I think it's a, it's a mess of their own making, as they say. Yeah. Paul, I know you have well, some thoughts about this. Well, I, I can say, and uh, Scott can probably second this, that uh, split shared visits uh, and all of their different uh, uh, variations are probably one of the more common questions we get in the NamUs Ask the Auditor forum. Uh, and, you know, particularly also as it applies to critical care and how you report time on critical care services as well. There's, you would think that uh, that was well-defined and it's clear, but there's still some confusion out there when you have two providers of the same practice, one is a doctor, one is an NP, and uh, they're both providing critical care to the same patient, what the rules are. Uh, so time is not going to be the great panacea that everybody thinks it's going to be just by, oh, we'll just do time. As Terry mentioned, you know, that's got to be face-to-face -face time in an inpatient setting. It can't, you know, you can't just be off on another floor providing, right. you know, it's like, you know, and it, it draws attention to just how important 
if a physician's going to come in and helicopter in late in the game and start putting something forward with regard to uh, a sign-off of some kind in order to make it a split-shared visit, that better be a very detailed sign-off. It, it's not going to be three lines in the documentation and say, all right, I'm done, give me the money. You know, it's just not that easy anymore. Absolutely. So I'll take the last word on this one. You know, split-shared services, you know, just like Incident 2, they are a high-value audit target, not only for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, but for the commercial payers as well. I will tell you that the Office of Inspector General focuses significantly on any type of service where you have a non-physician practitioner performing services as if the physician, he or she, uh, themselves performed that service. And again, remember, it's because there's a payment differential. That's what it all boils down to. And providers, and, and, and I can't say that I would feel differently if I were a physician myself. Providers are looking at the continuation of decreased reimbursements. They're looking at it and saying, I have expenses for these non-physician practitioners. Why am I not going to utilize them to carry out my treatment plans? And I'll pop my head in there, but why should I not get the full credit for them when I'm attributed to full practice expense? Listen, healthcare is the most complex industry for a number of reasons. It's a three plus trillion dollar industry. What I'm telling you is you've got to now more than ever, especially with split shared services, you have got to have policies and procedures in writing. Terry and I always joke around and we always say things like, you know, well, our client just said, well, you know, they told us to do it that way. Well, who the heck is they? That's what I want to know. Who is they? I don't think it's George Strait, but it's somebody they. All right. Closing point on split shared services. If you can get around doing them, just let your NPs and PAs perform those services. Take the 15% hit because at the end of the day, it equates to putting cheese onto a quarter pounder at McDonald's. Or if you listen to Terry's and I uh, hashtag Terry Tuesday, it equates to putting bacon on your Sonic meal. All right, let's move forward on to the next one. Um, all right. Yes, I invoked George Strait. He is the man, the myth, the legend. Okay, here we go. So, Terry, I'm going to. Put you into the big box right here. And I want stuff. Yeah. Yes. I want to talk about the fact that there has been an extension to the flexibilities for certain assessments that are furnished via the audio only communication. Now, this is through the end of calendar year 2024. So it this as well got extended. Now, if if this is finalized, this means things like Opioid treatment programs are going to be allowed to bill Medicare when video is not available. And using technology permitted by the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration, 
this extension would equalize telehealth flexibilities across providers of care. So I'm going to pause there and I'm going to let Terry kind of take this one and run with it. So I went through and kind of fine tooth combed it. And there are some nuances that you need to be aware of. First of all, behavioral health is a big one. So they're trying to really expand behavioral health, mental health services, and allow for certain things for audio only. But it's very clear that it's, it's for established patients. So not all new patients are going to fall into this category. Also, when we talk about the opioid or prescription, the DEA said, and it's actually through the end of uh, November, through November, I think 13th of this year, um, if you haven't already made an in-person visit, if you're prescriptive under the behavioral health or um, uh, mental health, and you're not considered a established patient, then you still have to have that in-person visit. So that's not, people don't seem to understand that. They think it's blanket. They don't, they read the headline, but not the details. And the thing I think you also have to keep in mind, remember that the phone call codes as we know it will be deleted at the end of 2024. So the audio only phone call codes, 99441 to 443, will no longer exist January 1st, 2025, because we will have 17 new telehealth codes. And we don't know what's going to happen as far as payment, if it's going to be parity, what, what's going to happen there. So keep that in mind, the reason that these things are, are considered to be temporary. But also a lot of these are also um, tied to specific diagnoses. They're tied to specific um, frequency guidelines, again, new versus established. And also if it is behavioral health, you have to use, an, and it's audio only, you have to use an FQ modifier that says that audio only when audio and video is not available. It's really big that on the audio only, whether it be behavioral health or anything, that you have to justify why you can't see a patient, either audio and video or in person. You know, Sean and I talked about this in a little bit in the Terry Tuesday episode, but just real, realize that um, telehealth, yes, already has been expanded through 2024. So in reading what the proposal is, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of uh, change that I, I don't understand why they put that in there because it's already extended through 2024. But the other thing is that we're th over three years, we were into the telehealth. And so if you don't have an audio and video capability in the physician's practice, that's what they're talking about. When they say that if it's not available, they're saying the patient it's not available and you have to justify why it isn't. So Terry, so that's the big real, thing. real quick, there was a very good comment that was posted by Sheila Rodriguez on uh, LinkedIn. And she said, AMA mentioned that they will be going with MDM in time. Whoop. I'm sorry. That was for the split shared services. I'm a little late on the uptick there. Let's not go back. <laughs> Let's not go back. Uh, Sheila, we'll answer that question for you a little bit later. Uh, sorry about that. Keep going, Terry. No. So basically it's just there. They also added like audiologists, speech language pathologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, and everybody knows my soapbox. I, I really don't like the the PT and OT through audio only. I, and I just don't understand it. There's too many parents. There's too many spouses. There's too many partners. There's too many housekeepers that are acting as a physical therapist on the other end in, in just a body and not understanding strength, grip, what's happening. Is the patient recovering or not? While there's a physical therapist on one end trying to tell them what to do and to an unlicensed person. So it, it drives me crazy that this is being allowed. And I'm hoping and I guess we didn't, we should have said this at the beginning. Everyone is a stakeholder, not just the provider. Okay. So we are stakeholders. You're a stakeholder. Anybody that has to 
um, that touches a Medicare claim that is involved in healthcare, you need to really make sure that you are commenting, that you are putting in your two cents, whether you agree with our position or not, that um, you're heard because, and just so you know, Medicare listens, they don't always do it, but they basically do take into account what everyone says. But, and I'll, I think um, Christine and I, or Paul and I were talking about this, um, they, they said that they get about 2% of all stakeholders actually comment. I was like, what? So That's nobody's what saying was, anything. And, and I read, I was reading through the proposal and the proposal we were talking about increasing reimbursement for certain costs that providers have. However, providers were not submitting their actual invoices so that we could see that it was costing them more. I have providers that are choosing not to do procedures because they're not getting their full reimbursed cost out of pocket right. for drugs and for things like that. But like you said, Terry, if we don't comment, if we don't get involved, if we don't use the modifiers that have been put in place, how is CMS going to know that there is a deficiency there? We can all say everybody knows, um, just like Alicia had said in her comment earlier, everybody knows, but CMS can't do anything without those concrete comments in place. Like Sean says all the time, no change can happen unless there is comments that are reviewed. There are opinions that are reviewed. Change can't happen. Right. So, and, and I'm going to send it over to Paul on psychotherapy. But the one thing also that just to kind of wrap this part up a little bit, I think everyone thinks when they think of telehealth that it's office visits or audio only visits. It's not. Look at your mm -hmm. approved list. Behavioral health, psychotherapy, a lot of that have their own codes. And on that list, it'll have yes in a column if it's audio only approved, and it'll be blank in a column if it's not. And nobody's paying attention to that. Paul, are you saying something like that? Well, uh, my big point with regard to psychotherapy is that it's not just enough to uh, point out that it's being uh, conducted via telehealth. Right now, I'm in the middle of, uh, I think we're up to three uh, target and probe and educate audits for psychotherapy in my part of the world, uh, where they are going after not just the documentation that this was a telehealth service, but, you know, are you making references back to the treatment plan? And uh, are, you know, is your treatment plan showing exactly what you expect for progress? And is the uh, treatment, daily treatment note reflecting that progress? There better be a lot of, uh, attention to your documentation and you know compliance is all about proactivity uh, not only should you be commenting on any physician fee schedule but uh, particularly in uh, the the uh, telehealth world i would start uh, really thinking about an investment in secure audiovisual technology that goes away from your phone uh, a zoom meeting uh, something along those lines that was allowed during the pandemic, uh, because we really don't know in 2024 and beyond what those standards are going to be. But I would imagine that they're going to be uh, demanding that it's much more secure than what we're dealing with now, because we are no longer in a public health emergency. Well, and remember, as of um, the 9th of August, you have to have a HIPAA compliant platform now. You can't use Skype, FaceTime, um, Google Hangouts. You have to, that was your 90 day free pass. So OCR, Office of Civil Rights, they ended that rule. And so you have to have a HIPAA compliant. Otherwise they're gonna now use the 
enforcement to, because you're in violation now. And what that means, so let's say, what is, what is a HIPAA um, violation? So let's say a patient uses their phone and they're using uh, FaceTime. And remember, FaceTime um, follows you. It's kind of like using Venmo. They, they, they encourage people to know what's going on. And so if you're talking to your doctor and let's say your physician is orthopedic and they're saying, you know, you really could use a knee brace, all of a sudden you're going to get all these ads for knee braces. Somebody's listening. That's a violation. And so, and patients get upset about that. So, you know, I, uh, I, I tried to buy a mattress last year and my brilliant <laughs> idea was there should be some website you could go to and basically say like, I bought a mattress, please stop. Cause it just went on for months. And I think you're right. Uh, you know, the one thing I would say about this, um, you know, some clarity from the government over the long term would be great. Uh, I think the point that you're making about it, we have now been three plus years into the pandemic. If telehealth is something you're interested in as a service to provide on an ongoing basis, you should be thinking about it in some respects as a pandemic agnostic compliant business model and who you can render it to. And how, like, it, you know, so someone like my, my dad, right, it, with, with with respect to phone visits, like, I would sell tickets to, tr to, to people trying to watch him establish like an audio video connection following instructions. So he's probably not a prime like telehealth candidate. Uh, at the same time, you know, we talk a lot about access to primary care services. It's something I hear a lot uh, from from patients, from, you know, surveys that we do when we go on site. Um, telehealth is a way to potentially solve a lot of those concerns when done in a compliant manner. And, and to be fair, I think some clarity over the long term from the government with respect to their covered lives about how they intend to to do this would be great, even though I know that requires some congressional intervention in some cases. It does. So do we want to move on to the fee schedule? All right. So conversion factor. Yeah. Right. So let's. Yeah. So let's move into, well, yes, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the, the decrease of 3.34% of our conversion factor, which is our multiplier for our RVUs. Yeah. It's Go ahead, Terry. Go well, ahead. I mean, and we're going down it. from what it is now, 33.89 and it's going down to 32.75. And here's the problem. Everybody's probably seeing that new, what they call the additional, um, complex patient add-on. It's a G code. So it is temporary. Remember G is G. We're watching you. It's a temporary code, uh, G2211. And it, what confuses me right now, remember this was supposed to come out, I think in 2019 and they put it on hold or 20 and they said, no, cause nobody knows how to use it. So now they're like, Oh, guess what? We're bringing it back. Um, it's going to be an additional amount. And they said to do that, because remember you have to have balancing, you have to take from Peter to pay Paul, if you know, that kind of saying, and so that's why they're saying, well, that's going to be a 2.17% reduction because primary care related services get to use this G2211. And it's a, and it kind of says, or additional complex patients, but I could see specialists getting this denied if they're not primary care based. I, I don't know for sure. We haven't had clarity on that, but here's the problem. It's also not valid if you use a 25 modifier for that ENM visit that day. So they said, so if you do a minor procedure or major procedure that of course wasn't planned and you have a 25 modifier with your E&M, but the patient's also complex, you can't add that G2211. 
And so it's only for the isolated ENM. And right now it's just talking about um, primary care. It says, and other kinds of direct patient care, other kinds. What does that mean? Could they be any more vague? Um, but we are getting a, a 3.34 decrease. Now, people don't realize we're also looking at, remember the PAYGO? Remember the, the government is doing all kinds of relief packages and inflation reduction things and that, okay, I'm going to not be political and say that's a bunch of crap, but <laughs> it's, they're going to attack Medicare because they always attack what comes in, you know, Medicare. And we're looking at another 4% reduction for that come 2024. They haven't put that on hold yet. So on top of the 3%, we could be looking at another 4%. That hasn't been delayed yet. We haven't seen Congress say no. So uh, it, this is one of the big things. I mean, 32.75, I looked the last time we were at that rate, and it was 1978. So yeah. do the inflation <laughs> math. Right now, it should be 62.72. Yep. And, you know, when our good friend, you know, Jordan, um, look, Jordan Johnson, he's the one that figured out all this math stuff. And he goes, look what I found. And I'm like, because I wouldn't do it. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. So it should be double. And they're saying, oh, but we're going to give you this extra. So. I don't well, know. It's, it's just, it's a mess right now. It is I, an absolute mess. Yeah. I, so with respect to the um, conversion factor, I think we're going to be in the same situation where come January, you know, they're going to say, uh, we're going to kick the can a little bit further down the road and we're not going to listen at some point they're going to have to take these reductions. I mean, it's, it's. But Sean, not if nobody says, not if anybody doesn't say anything, you have to speak up. That's and what so I was going to say again. You only have the collective associations, which is one voice. Yeah. MGMA, got to have one voice. you know, the specialty societies, they're going to, they're going to yeah. raise their, you know, they're going to raise their voices like they do every year about, you know, the, um, you know, how unjust it is, how bad it is, the costs escalating for the care of the patients. And my expectation is that Congress will intervene. And they'll give like a 1% increase, which won't cover, you know, the cost of living index or anything like that. And they'll kick the can down the road. And the reason why I think they'll do that, especially in 2024, is because it's an election year. And whether we want to admit it or not, this is a politically charged issue. When you start stripping dollars away from providers and it gets very vocal about how healthcare is going to be impacted, how providers are not going to participate in Medicare. They're not going to participate in Medicaid. There's already a mass exodus from state Medicaid programs. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. <clears throat> I have a client. I won't say what state because I don't, I don't want to get into it. But I have a client who had gone through a number of audits with a uh, Medicaid plan administered by a third party and their special investigative unit got involved and they issued, you know, a demand for refund. We argued the refund because it was just absolutely insane because everything was documented. It just wasn't in the place where the auditor wanted it from this, this payer. And then on top of that, they were getting reimbursed at a lower rate under this advantage plan, this Medicaid advantage plan 
than actual Medicaid was reimbursing, which was already low. And my client said to me, Sean, here's the deal. Get us out of Medicaid here in the state. We're done. We're not paying back this. And it was a tiny bit of money, but they didn't care. They said, we're not paying it back. They're wrong. The SIU would not engage with us in a meaningful dialogue. Um, sent notice of termination on behalf of our client to the plan. And all of a sudden, within 24 hours, the senior leadership is reaching out to us saying, wait a minute, can we get onto a call? Please don't opt out. We need your providers. We need you guys. Of course you need us because there's nobody else in this state who's crazy enough to participate with you guys. So, you know, anytime you start talking about reimbursement and, and providers, you, you have to recognize, one, there is already a significant shortage of physicians in this industry. We're seeing a big increase in non-physician practitioners, right? Nurse practitioners, PAs, and that's a good thing. And they have their place. They do wonderful work, you know, in many states where they can function independently. It's a great thing. And it, it fills the void uh, for the absence of a physician, an MD or a DO. But at the same time, we still have a tremendous shortage. We have a shortage of individuals getting into medical schools. Listen, because of that, what did they do? Many of the Ivy League schools actually did away with the requirement for an MCAT. You don't even have to take an MCAT any longer to get into medical school. Just wait till you don't have to take a pilot's license test to fly a plane. That'll be fun. You don't even have to do that now. You just get into a simulator and demonstrate oh, that you know the on-off switch and elevators, ailerons, but Sean, rudders, one, flaps. One, one thing that's concerning me, not yeah. just about the, the lower decreased rate, but you mentioned, a, you brought up a really good point as far as um, we only have so many physicians now. We have such a, a you know, a, a lack of even mid-level providers, um, frontline nurses. But the problem is they're expanding the providers and there's only one pie. I mean, providers that to me aren't providers. They want, they're going to expand. What did I see? Life coaching. Um, and what, what's the certification for that? Um, they added, let me see, let me look here, new benefit category for family therapists, marriage therapists, mental health counselors. And I said, what's the, what's the mental health counselor? I mean, you know, yeah, to Paul's point, I mean, do you, do you go to Costco? And as long as you have a picture ID, then, you know, you have something online you could take. And, and I'm not, and also when we talk about mental health and behavioral health and all that, I think it's a great thing that they're expanding it, especially through the telehealth means. I do but they, they don't have safeguards. There's no guardrails to, to reel it in and say, this is what that visit should look like. This is what that encounter should look like. Here are the limitations. Maybe put frequency guidelines on it. Otherwise, it's a free-for-all like it is now. And I, I think the problem is, is they're trying to take this one pie and not realize if you want to keep quality physicians, you have to really real, recognize MDs, DOs are mid-level providers. Anybody who can bill independently really have to be the priority. And I'm not trying to discount some of the, you know, and I don't want to use ancillary um, providers, but that's really what it's coming down to. Why should Medicare pay for lifestyle medicine? That's a, a life life coach? What the heck? I mean, well, I, I, I'm just... I, I, yeah, so I, just, I, I see where you're going with that. And I think one of the big, big discussions and one of the most important things is the coverage of preventive services. I, I think, obviously, 
you get out ahead of a lot of these disease, you know, symptoms, signs, disease processes, and you can have early detection to better, you know, treat these patients, you know, catch it earlier. Maybe there's an opportunity to, you know, get somebody when they're pre-diabetic and, and, and get them to a healthier lifestyle. I, I understand, but there's so many critical things for significant diseases that Medicare just isn't paying for. I mean, you know, we're having to go through discussions right now. Paul and I had to deal with this and we've been dealing with it for weeks for bioengineered skin substitutes, right? You know, we have patients that are being treated for these chronic non-healing ulcers, these diabetic non-healing ulcers, but there's a limitation. Let me ask this question. How much sense does this make? You are limited to under a new policy that's coming out, right? A new coverage determination from CMS under their draft guidelines that you will only be allowed four graft coverings per wound per per 12 weeks. But what happens if there's an expansion or there's a problem with the wound and there has to be further debridement? They have to expand it. Now the graft is too small. We have to get it larger. And we've exceeded the four. There's no clauses in there about medical necessity to allow for addition, which means now you're in a strict liability situation where irrespective of whether it's medically necessary or not, you're going to have to make a refund if you get paid for a fifth or sixth or seventh. I mean, we have a provider who's claiming that he's done more than 20 on a patient. I mean, you know, that's why I don't like incorporating the the lifestyle medicine, the coaching, yeah. the, you know, marriage counselors who just have a certificate into services that really need to be for patients that are sick. I mean, even getting cancer treatments are, is really tough right now. We put so much money into COVID. Yeah. We, you know, we don't just have one problem. We so I want, to talk about, yeah. I want to talk about this right here because I think this is such a great statement because it's a hundred percent accurate, right? Because the government continues to talk about the, the, the solvency, right? Or the insolvency of the Medicare trust fund. And the fact that they, they have to use these cost cutting measures to be able to preserve it for, you know, the future. Well, folks, that's a bunch of bull crap. And here's the reason why Medicare CMS has already said the government has already said we want to be out of the healthcare claims processing business by 2030. We want all Medicare Part B beneficiaries in, um, uh, enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan by 2030. They've already said this. They've made it crystal clear. And if you look, I think the latest numbers, and somebody could correct me if I'm wrong, but it's greater than 60% of all Medicare beneficiaries are already enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan because Joe Namath and JJ Walker have said it is dynamite. You're going, you're going to get, you know, you're going to get um, free, free bus transportation, free meals, free movie tickets, free this, free that. Listen, well, your surgery is not going to be covered, but yeah, your surgery <laughs> won't be covered, but you can, you can join the golden sneakers or silver sneakers. You can walk through that. the mall an hour yeah. before. It I mean, I know we're, 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 we're making some comments, but 
we're trying to add a little bit of levity to a critical situation. And physicians are becoming more and more disenfranchised. Listen, on a daily basis, we are having to fight the UPICs. We are fighting the recovery audit contractors in their automated reviews. We are fighting the max. We are fighting these um, notice of Medicare Part B payment suspensions when there's no good cause other than the fact they just said we determined it was good cause. Listen, I have a case going on right now. Now I'm going to give it over to Scott. I have a case going on right now where they sent a notice of payment suspension two days prior to sending a notice of record request. They had already made up their mind that they're going to suspend the provider. Oh, by the way, can we now get your medical records? Now, I know there's protocols in Chapter 3 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual that says they can do certain things. I get it, right? Or actually, it's Chapter 8, excuse me, under payment suspensions. But here's the thing. They are lumping all providers into one bucket because there is a single digit of bad actors out there doing things that are unethical. They are lumping 90% of providers into that bucket with that small percentage. All right, I'm going to stop on that right now. Scott, I know you have a point that you want to make, so let me go ahead. And yeah, going back to where we started, and, and we talked about this notion of kicking the can down the road, and my first year in healthcare, working in healthcare was 2002, and it's now 2023. And if I had, you know, I was young enough back then that when we talked about these three and 4% fee schedule cuts and these temporary fixes, you know, we could kind of look at each other and say, well, I, I'll probably be retired before they fix that. And then I would laugh because I was young. And now I'm not young, and there's a good chance they won't fix it before I'm retired. And it's unfortunate. And, and, and you know, Terry talked about advocacy. Uh, I worked with a group recently that um, we did some work with on their revenue cycle and on their billing and on their operations. And this group had made a couple of decisions a while back, one of the, in part related to lifestyle, there are various factors behind it, but they decided um, that they weren't going to expand into a lot of in-office ancillary services in part because of the hospital relationships. And they wanted to try to work a certain way as an independent, sort of smallish group practice. And part of this assessment was just watching the the whittling and draining of their professional fees. And a byproduct of some of these fee calculations that have occurred over the years was almost the reality that if they didn't want to go into in-office ancillary services, if they didn't want to have imaging, if they didn't want to have those kinds of things, their professional fees were just going to continue to be whittled away. And that's what the numbers showed going back to this notion of what the conversion factor should be versus what the conversion factor is. And, and it's almost laughable to think now that a physician could come out of med school and say, well, I'd like to practice independently as a solo, right? It's, it's practically impossible. And, and these are changes that have impacted the patient relationship, patient relationship. So with regard to Medicare fee for service issues versus Medicare Advantage, I mean, I've, I've never talked to my primary care provider about this, but he's had a sign in his office for 10 years that says, if you're not a, an established patient to me and your Medicare fee for service, you can't come into the practice as new. You have to be on Medicare Advantage. And that's a fee calculation for our market. Like in some markets, it's probably not, doesn't make that much of a difference. 
what they have, but but there are real implications uh, for everybody when we talk about stakeholders and everybody being a stakeholder. There's real implications to the way this has been managed over the last 15 or 20 years. The lack of certainty about fees, the decline in professional fees, the requirement to move ancillary services into the office if you want to make money and the impact that that has on the overall service delivery. Uh, we had the comment about the government no, can no longer afford Medicare and Medicaid and they can't eliminate them. You know, there's a there's there's a school of thought that in theory, the government can afford anything. It's just we saw it during COVID, right? It's like, here's a bunch of money. And, and, you know, the question is always, which bad choice do you want, right? Do you want to pay more? Do you want to cut something else? Um, and, 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 you know, to me, what we've done over the last 20 years is similar to what I said about uh, split shared visits, right? Like at some point, you just got to make a decision. And this thing has been strung along for so long. There's so little certainty about it. And there's so many real implications about it that I think it it has a material effect on service delivery and how practices operate and the and the frankly the viability of physician practices that don't want to be part of some enormous system. Well, I think the other thing that people seem to not know the history of Medicare. Medicare was created in 1966. The average the uh, life expectancy back then was 72.7 years. Well, okay, we also. Um, they thought, okay, we're gonna we're gonna have it till 65, so patients are gonna be treated about 10 years. So it was between 72 to 75, and so they thought this is a good thing. Then they opened it up in 1973 to people who were on what they call disability insurance, a Social Security disability insurance, and back then that was about seven percent of the Medicare population. Currently, right now, our life expectancy is 82.3, <laughs> and also. They open it up now for, again, the disability, that's 16% of the Medicare population. They, you know, Scott talks about management. I don't know how anybody could survive with this kind of management. It's terrible. I mean, don't even get me started on the federal budget. I, I, I mean, if you ever saw the movie Dave, you know how it works. But it just, it, it's crazy because, you know, when you, when you open it up and, and you start it and you expect people to only live about 10 years past when they are eligible, that's one thing. But people are living 20 years, even longer. I, I had a grandmother lived to 101. So she was on Medicare forever. And so when, you know, and then you get spouses and then there's, um, you know, widowed spouses, there's all kinds of eligibility for people who really didn't pay into it. And so it's just interesting when they look at the current Medicare and Medicaid, don't forget Medicaid also, or um, Medicare also pays, CMS, pays certain amount to the states for Medicaid to match some of their funding. So the, the agency, the program is so pulled for money. I, you know, when I see these, these new proposals, I understand why these new proposals are there, but I don't understand why this is where they keep attacking, where they're pulling money from when they're they need to spend it on other things or foreign aid or whatever they're spending it on it's like we've, we've got to pull resources to put more money into this program because it's, it's terrible and one last thing i didn't mention a lot of very expensive drug therapies um very very expensive drug therapies and, and you know there's a there i probably don't want to do it on this panel, but there's always a philosophical question about a drug that costs sixty thousand dollars a month the intent of which is to prolong your life by like six to nine months. Uh, and that's going to be, you know, I, I mean, I don't have that statistic in front of me, but they always talk about what percentage of Medicare expenditures occur in the final 
you know, what, three months of a person's life, right? And and the importance of living wills and planning and things like that, because, uh, you know, I, I always joke about my dad living in Florida and it's, you know, he's got state insurance, so he's not fully on Medicare, but, you know, how it works with the secondary coverage and they pass him along like he's a money bag, right? Because it's just like he can afford it. It's Florida. I mean, it's, his social calendar is cardiology and urology and primary care. And, and, you know, so there's there's multiple sides to it, obviously, but but that's an important consideration. Well, there was a canary in the coal mine this year that might even, uh, or this week, that might even increase uh, costs more. In the city of New York, one of the labor unions, uh, it was didn't you know it was determined that one of the labor unions, instead of having a union plan for retirees, was going to be shifted to Medicare Advantage. The union rose up and said, "You didn't negotiate that, and we don't want Medicare Advantage." So I would look for uh, enormous amounts of uh, uh, public employee unions to start uh, negotiating for uh, the right. Uh, you know, to particularly the employer to have the right to shift you to a Medicare Advantage plan as your retiree plan rather than a union plan just to get it off their state books. Uh, and uh, a few other things just about Medicare Advantage. Uh, you know, in 1966, actually, the male uh, life expectancy was 66.7. Uh, so, <laughs> so, I mean, uh, if you're retiring at 65, that's pretty good. You know, the fact that the first Medicare card went to Harry Truman, who was uh, in his mid-80s, was pretty good. Uh, but, uh, you know, and another thing that people are really not taking into account, and I think of this in the broader idea of the economy, we call people boomers for a reason. There was a baby boom with a lot of people in a short time between 1946 and 1964. It was a really good idea for insurance companies to pass the cost of caring on to, for the elderly off in 1966 when those people were 20 years old. When they started aging, the insurance uh, company said, well, there's a buck to be made here. And all they have to do is throw around a few bucks on Capitol Hill and suddenly the world is their oyster and the coffers are open to them. Uh, and one last thing about drug uh, uh, costs, if uh, anybody, any retiree or anybody who's on Medicare Part D actually read the legislation that started that and uh, researched who Billy Tauzin was, Billy Tawson would have a constant stream of mud balls thrown at his front door because he's really the architect of a lot of the high drug costs that are now in that system because it was average sale price rather than average wholesale price that he navigated. And then nine months after they signed the legislation, he got a job with Big Pharma as a lobbyist. Wasn't that, uh, wasn't that nice? Yeah. Yeah, one thing I would love to see, just to sort of make one more point on this, is back in 1996, what the pie chart looked like of Medicare, Medicare expenditure divided among like physicians, professional services in an office, um, surgery, uh, drug, I mean, take everything, right? Like ancillary services, drugs on the Part B side versus what it looks like now, because it just, you know, going back to my 20 years, it just feels like there's been a giant migration towards in-office ancillary services, buying bill drugs, uh, in-office procedures, and that because we have this Rob Peter to pay Paul formula that Terry had mentioned, 
that always comes at the expense of professional services. Like professional services in a way don't really change a whole lot, right? You get some efficiencies with different things that you do, but you know, going to see the doctor is kind of the same as it was, you know, 20 years ago. Like what they recommend might be different, but the act of, you know, going to and sitting in the lobby and all the rest of it's not that different. I wanted to jump in real quick about the Medicare Advantage plans and just to, to bring some light that over the last couple of years, we're now seeing that um, CMS has had to really look at these Medicare Advantage plans and how they were reporting their diagnosis that were not supported, those long lists that doctors like to write of all the conditions that a patient may or may not have um, and getting credit for that. Now we're seeing the overpayments from the Medicare Advantage plans. So my thought process behind that is we're going to start seeing a big change. And I mean, it, it's it's not even my thought process. Really, we have a new version that's coming up, version 28, of uh, that's going to affect Medicare Advantage. And that's going to take some of these conditions that were being reimbursed under the Medicare Advantage formula, um, and they're going to be taking that out. So I think we're going to see a big change to Medicare Advantage over the next couple of years, but I think there's also going to be a big financial change in it as well. Medicare Advantage is great for the healthy patient. Sean and I were talking about that. You get free gym memberships. You get um, monthly stipends to CVS, which can always be an outing for anybody. <clears throat> you get um, all kinds of mailed vitamins. What else does my husband get? He's telling me all this fun stuff. I'm like, do you get a gas card? Because I haven't asked for that. Maybe I will. He gets the, discounts um, on deodorant. Card. Yeah. He, he's like, he goes, I get this. And he was just telling me all the fun stuff he gets. And I'm just like, and how much does that cost you a month? He goes, oh, because I'm a retired teacher. It's, it's only like, you know, $29 a month for him. Like no skin like, cancer wow. screenings, right? Yeah. So, yeah. well, and that's the thing. I was like, well, you're not sick yet. He goes, yeah, that would be a problem. And I'm just like, oh, geez. I love how you say yet. <laughs> so that CVS trip sounds fun. You know, so, can you imagine you have your own free money? They get are that, giving discount that. cards when you fill out questionnaires. Yeah. Get oh, that. yeah. He got an Amazon right. $10 card for a That's survey. Right. So yeah. you, there's a like, little bit of a profit to be made get there. Get that 83 foot long receipt, bring that thing home and make some origami or something. All right. Some origami. <laughs> All right. I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Coding and Compliance Roundtable. As always, I want to thank Terry, Scott, Paul, Christine for being ever present and ever ready to discuss some of these huge issues. To each and every single one of you tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us, thank you all so much. Terry and I uh, have our hashtag Terry Tuesday recording that should be ready and available for you all in the next couple of hours. And then later this week, I'll have a couple more episodes with Legal with Lyles, Robert Lyles, Ashley Morgan of Lyles Parker. Always a good time. So until then, remember, be good to yourself. But more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? 
We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.